And I'm Mitch. And I'm Jim. And this is Topic Lords, the only place on the internet you can hear topics discussed. Chris, would you like to introduce yourself or do you have anything to plug? Well, my name's Chris. I am a video game developer and I'm going to plug my dog who is sleeping here and giving me a very baleful look. But she is still the best. You should send me a, 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 a dog photo so I can put it in the show notes. Oh, a dog photo. Yes, of course. I would only send one. You could send me an whole, a whole imager gallery if you like. I'll just link to it. Mitch, would you like to introduce yourself or do you have anything to plug? Yeah, uh, I'm Mitch. Uh, I'm a video essayist. I have a channel called Jan Misely where I talk about literally whatever. I also make mashups sometimes. I've got an album coming out uh, called Disambiguation, which is going to be releasing on uh, December 14th. Uh, so that's what I'm plugging. Nice. Sounds good. How many of your viewers think your first name is Jan? Have you taken a poll? Yeah, right. Because I write Jan lowercase, so you know that that's not the name part of the name. I mean, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like a name. Like I've had a per literally there's a person whose name is Jan who reached out to me. And talk, talk specifically about how he thought my name was Jan. Was he disappointed when he found out he wasn't? It's very, it's a disappointing thing to learn, yeah, that my name isn't actually Jan. But uh, it's actually uh, because one of the first things that I started making videos about is the language Tokipona. I made like this 12-part lesson series in that. And uh, in Tokipona, uh, names are adjectives. Um, that you put after, because in Tokipona, in order to talk about anything, you need to describe what it is. That's like the concept of the language. So all people are Jan first, that's the word for person, and then an adjective, which is their name. So I am the person who is Misali, so my name is Jan Misali. This was explained to me, not in so many words, in the Topic Lords Discord when I referred to you as Jan. Oh, were they like, there's lots of people here, be more specific. <laughs> we are we are all Jan, right? Are we ready to start on some topics? I want to know more about this language. Oh yeah. Uh, well, I have a whole series of videos about it. <laughs> That's probably fair. All right, I can go watch those and not take up precious topic time. Yeah, Chris, your your first topic is why the game Hades is great. All right. Well, this one's easy. It's great because it's awesome. All right. Next topic. But wait, there's more. I've been playing it lately after. At least like five different people I knew either told me I should play it or in one case gifted it to me on Steam because they took one look at it and said this is a Chris game. <laughs> the basics that you can get from like reading the Steam page is it's the latest thing from Supergiant Games. You may know from Bastion, Pyre, Transistor, etc. They make pretty well-polished single-player games. And just on this one, they've kind of outdone themselves. Like... I'm just going to list some ridiculous topics, some ridiculous things about it that are just, you know, any two of which would probably make a game pretty great. There's going to be like a bunch of them. So first off, just gameplay, solid. It's like an action roguelike. It's kind of like if you took Binding of Isaac gameplay and made it more melee focused instead of uh, ranged and gave it like really amazing art. Number two, move on to, is the art. Holy wow. It's like... Be, it's like playing inside of like a Mike Mignolia. Mike Mignolia? I can never pronounce his name. The guy that draws Hellboy has amazing line work. It's like being in one of his like comics. Like every just still frame looks like a comic thing. I mean, I know in my head that it's built out of tiles procedurally and like all the rooms are kind of like built out of modular pieces, but it just looks so pretty. Like every piece of it and the styles and like it's just very cool. Is it constructed out of out of a, a 2D or 3D, would you say? You know, I thought for a long time it was 3D, and only after I read an interview where uh, they were talking about some of the technical challenges involved in animating the place where you get to pet the dog Cerberus did I discover, oh, like, yeah, wait, yeah, I saw that. that actually is all 2D. It's just all, well, it's 3D that's been baked into 2D sprites. Right. Which is, you know, pretty clever that I hadn't actually realized that. I mean, I hadn't really thought about it a whole lot, but I hadn't actually realized that clever bit of game development legend main until actually, like, reading that interview. That's a good number, like, four, like, awesome thing about it is you can pet Cerberus um, and give him treats. I mean, game of the year right there. 
seriously. Like that was that was literally the first thing I did when I walked up to the house of Hades. Was like, wait, giant red three headed dog. I'm running over to it. Oh my word! There's a pop up thing of like press left trigger to pet. I am on that. <laughs> can you can you pet each head individually? You can't. And the in-game reason is that only the leftmost head actually enjoys being petted. The out-of-game reason that they talked about in the interview that apparently both Mitch and I saw is that that actually would require more resources to do separate anim- animations for all of them. And they're like, well, people want this, but we could also use those resources to like make you know a new enemy or a new interaction or just some other part of the actual gameplay that's more than kind of fluff. So maybe we just explain this away with like a hand wave and move on with our lives. Uh, at some point, they're going to have to add that feature in. I mean, at this point, there's enough there's enough dialogue lines where Prince Agrius mentions things about how like, oh, you don't like, like being petted, do you, other heads? I'll pet this one. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, at this point, it's canon. This is a nice segue onto number five. Uh, the voice acting, which is actually going to be five and six on my list of like reasons why Hades is awesome. The five is just, it's very well done. It's competent. They have a bunch of good voice actors doing it. It never is annoying to me. Some of the voices I actually like really like and just kind of enjoy interacting with those people. Number six is quantity. Jeez. They just like, so the basic structure of the game is you try to escape Hades you encounter various Greek gods along the way who give you presents, and which are the form of upgrades, and you try to get out, and you die, and you start back over back in Hades, and then you can talk to various people. And everyone is fully voiced, and everyone has a huge number of lines that they've set up to be kind of adaptive, and actually like take a lot, like pay a lot of attention to just your current gameplay state. So you'll like Meet, like you'll find a spot where you can talk to like I don't know Dionysus or something. He's like this kind of party guy. And, but if you're low on health, he'll talk about how like oh man, you're kind of beat up. You want like something nice to take the edge off, or you show up and you've like just recently got a boon from Aphrodite, and he talks about how like wow, she's pretty sweet. She won't give me the time of day. And they just clearly just sat down and thought of a huge number of potential like just triggers to watch for as well as a bunch of just kind of generic things yeah that was the big gimmick in bastion yeah uh, exactly that it was extremely voice reactive and i can't speak to the development of this game but i remember uh looking into that one and they had a a full-time writer and b like a full-time voice actor like you know 40 hours a week for the game's development i would believe it it's pretty intense like for for context, voice acting in video games tends to be pull in, you know, we hire an actor and we have them for a day or maybe a week and they record all, the, all their lines and then they never see it again. We never see them again. Uh, and so, if one of those lines is, is bad somehow, like if, if it needs to be changed, what you have to do is you have to like sit there like with the existing dialogue and try to splice together. Can we Can we make them sort of say the new thing with splice together dialogue lines? There is that bit in uh, I, I I don't know if any of you did played uh, Super Mario 3D All Stars. Yeah, but uh, in Mario Sunshine, there's full voice acting, right? And the tutorial they have Flood explain what buttons you need to press. And hey, the buttons are different because for whatever reason they didn't have GameCube controller support in the Switch the Switch version. Even though the Switch can use GameCube controllers, they didn't have GameCube controller support for this game. So they can't have Flood tell you to press a button that isn't on the controller. So they just spliced it together to remove the name of the button. So it's just saying, press the button, and it just skips what button. Right. If you watch the tutorial cutscene for uh, the 3D All-Stars version of Mario Sunshine, if you watch the tutorial cutscene v- and you're listening for it, the splicing is like so obvious. Yeah. Well, and also like that game had to support a bunch of different controllers. So they would have had to uh, not just have had it say the names of the button on the controller, but the names of any one of the buttons that it could have been. Any of them except except for the one that originally was because it supports every Switch controller except the GameCube controller, which it was originally designed for. Right, right. That is kind of great. Yeah, it's funny the things that just sort of get lost like like in terms of resources from updating games like 
people don't really think about that a lot, but yeah, like sometimes you just that voice actor moved away or is booked or otherwise. Like a friend of mine is a producer at Namco and has had to do that. Has had late nights sitting up. Like they've changed the script. We need to fix this. Pull up like the audio thing and just see like, do we have the lines to make this work? Because right. Who in the studio sounds most like that person? I don't think they can do that because they need, you know, they need to credit that person's lines. That oh, person. right. That's, it's, there's a union thing to deal with. There's, there's, a, there's a union thing to go with. And so, like, I think he was working – one of the games he worked on was Afro Samurai. And so, like, he's in there with, like, Samuel L. Jackson. And it's like, you can't just, like, get, like, Bob from accounting to come do your best Samuel L. Jackson voice. Like, there's contract <laughs> things. Like, I mean, like, you could. You could, but, like, I feel like Samuel L. Jackson would show up in person and, like, somehow express his displeasure. Dressed as the Afro Samurai. Exactly. All right, I want to cover one one last uh, Hades gush, and then I'll, I'll shut up about the game for a moment, long enough for someone else to get into some words edgewise. It was made by people who really spent some time thinking about and paying attention to the mythology, like... Like a lot of us, I grew up on Greek mythology and have a, at least probably better than average acquaintance with various stories of basically the soap opera of the gods. There have been like there's been nothing where they've gone directly against anything. They've had a couple of kind of interesting takes on things, and they've had a couple of really delightful. Uh, I think what TV tropes calls mythology gags, where they basically offer a humorous explanation for a really weird piece of the mythology. In this case. You play as Prince Zagreus, who is presented as the son of Hades. There's a spot where you make, you're hanging out with your friend Orpheus, who you may recognize as a famous poet hero who wandered down to the underworld trying to rescue his, the love of his life and then almost succeeded. He's the one who was supposed to not look back all the way out and then like five feet from the exit is like, wait, I bet she's not really behind me and turned around and got to feel really bad for the rest of his life. Anyway, you, you're hanging out with him and convincing him, and you just start telling him weird stories that aren't really true, but like that makes sense in the context of like looking at the mythology of like this is a this is such a weird thing. How did this get here? The game is explaining. Well, it got here because Prince Zagreus just said weird crap to Orpheus, who took it as fact and made songs about it. For example, the god Zagreus is actually one that like shows up a little bit in mythology, but in like weird places like. He's either, like, the son of Zeus and Persephone, or maybe of Hades and Persephone, and he might also be Dionysus, or, like, the first Dionysus before a second Dionysus, and he might actually be king of the underworld. A lot of Greek myths kind of, like, end up, they're not as monolithic as it looks, and they kind of get, like, smooshed together, like, and absorbed as as different groups sort of, you know, net up and try to fit each other's belief systems into their frameworks. And anyway... Prince Zagreus, in particular, has some really weird uh, backstory, and I got to the part in Hades where he just starts, as a joke, describing it to the bard, and the bard starts telling everyone about it, and I don't know, I found that delightful, It was because it was just obscure enough to make me feel cool for getting it. Right, yeah. I love a good in-joke. Anyway, Hades, great game. It has, like, good production values, excellent gameplay, and all that, but also just, like, it's... Well done on... Oh, I take it back. I said I was going to be done with that one. I have one more. <laughs> they made this amazing game with like all this depth, all these interesting combinations of power-ups and paths and choices. And then they looked at it and they said, this game's pretty good. But you know what it really needs to like make it pop? It needs a fishing minigame. <laughs> <laughs> so on top of everything else, you can pay some money and then you get a fishing rod. Because why not? Hades, everyone. Give it a shot if you like roguelikes. Any game can be improved by the addition of a fishing minigame. The the developer time they spent on that fishing minigame could have been spent on making all three heads pettable. <laughs> yeah. The fishing game has a bunch of voiceover, so. <laughs> yeah, just get the voice actor to, to figure out how to make the heads pettable. Just <laughs> get in there and figure out Blender. I mean, that's how art works, right? Any... Any one art skill you have can translate to anything else. You can just narrate petting the heads. Yeah. You can just say, like, and now I pet all three Cerberus heads. Aren't they great? Who is the best boy? And then the, I think everyone will just be compelled to do it. They have the voice lines now. They're not going to just throw them away. That could be one of the stories that he tells the bard. <laughs> the, the tale of the time I pet the other heads. 
Right. Are we ready for another topic? I think so. Yeah. I want to hear about people who get upset about the use of the word literally. That's good because that's what the topic is about. Oh, man, I am so lucky today. <laughs> uh, Mitch, your topic is people who get upset about the use of the word literally often say stuff like, you don't mean literally, you mean figuratively, even though the use they're complaining about very obviously does not mean figuratively. Okay, so someone will say something like, yeah, the dude jumped literally 10 feet in the air. And then someone else trying to like be pedantic replies by saying, actually, you mean figuratively, right? You've probably heard that, right? I think so, yeah. I mean, I've heard that pattern, but I'm not sure. So, so make your point and then I'll decide. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's a way that people correct it, right? They, they'll yeah, say yeah. specifically, you don't mean literally, you mean figuratively, because figuratively is the opposite of literally. Because, you know, you're, he didn't literally jump 10 feet in the air. You're, you're using a figure of speech. But the thing is, you're not using the word literally to mean that you're using a figure of speech. You're using it to uh, exaggerate what you're saying. You're lying in order to tell a story. It's a hyperbole. You're using the word literally to mean literally. You're, you're, like the, if someone uses the word literally in a context where they're telling a story or they're saying a phrase in its figurative form, they're not inserting the word literally there to specify that it, they're just telling it's just a figure of speech. They're inserting the word literally there because it means literally they're saying I'm not exaggerating and that's a way to make it more dramatic. Right. Yes. So you're saying that fundamentally it, it wouldn't matter if I said he literally jumped 10 feet or. He jumped 10 feet, because either way, I'm clearly engaged in hyperbole. So, Well, adding literally, I think it makes the hyperbole, I think it makes the hyperbole better, right? By inserting the word literally there, because just saying he jumped 10 feet, well, it's pretty obvious that you're using a figure of speech there. But by saying literally, you're telling them I'm not using a figure of speech, and therefore the hyperbole is better. Mm -hmm. Even though you are using a figure of speech, so really, you're, you're acting as though you're wild claim is even more true, even though it's understood that it clearly isn't. It would be like saying, instead of saying he literally jumped 10 feet, he jumped 10 feet exactly. I measured it. It was totally 10 feet for real, guys. Yeah, exactly. Right. But if you were to say he figuratively jumped 10 feet in the air, that very obviously wouldn't mean the same thing. The other half of this point is that because people uh, have uh, decided that no, actually, you mean figuratively in this case, because people have decided that uh, that's the way you correct someone. A lot of people have come up with the counter response by saying, well, words can change their meaning over time. And the word literally means figuratively now, uh -huh. which I mean, yeah, words do change their meaning over time. But like the way people use the word literally, it doesn't mean figuratively. It still means literally. Right. This actually kind of is basically how much of our language at this point consists of stating things that are factually incorrect and assuming that the other person will understand based on context. Oh, yes. yeah, yeah. The other big example, of course, is sarcasm. And as we all are staying home a lot lately, thus communicating a lot more online, like it comes up a lot in online where I think it's a really interesting case study because you have a situation where you're trying to communicate by literally saying the opposite thing of what you believe and or are trying to convey and are counting on people in the like the listeners to recognize that based on uh, clues such as knowing you personally and knowing what you think, your tone of voice, your body language, and how ridiculous a point you're making. And the problem is all of those, with the maybe exception of the last one, are things that are completely bereft on online. So I don't know. I, I feel like this is a sister phenomenon of where somebody says something sarcastically and other people are like. Maybe you should add a slash S to indicate that this is definitely sarcasm. And then they get really upset about it. Like, I shouldn't have to define my sarcasm. You guys are just dumb for not getting it. Which I find a really interesting uh, sentiment because they're basically saying, you guys should just know this, even though you don't know me, can't tell what tone of voice I'm typing this in, and have zero access to any nonverbal cues while I say it. Right. Yeah, yeah. And also, like, sarcasm has been, like, a driver of linguistic change over the course of the history of the English language. Like, literally is a great is a great example of this, right, where the sarcastic use has become one of the most common uses. The same thing happened to the word really. Uh, the same thing happened earlier to the word very. And, like, there's actually, like, a scene, I think it's in Hamlet, where a character complains about the use of very and how people say very, but they don't actually mean very. <laughs> 
You don't mean very, you mean figuratively. Yeah. I, I just like this topic because it's an opportunity to turn people's pedantry back around at them. Yeah. It's the only language they understand. Another example where people correct a thing and be wrong about it, I think, is the phrase, I could care less, right? When people say, I could care less, people will correct them and say, no, you meant to say you couldn't care less, because if you could care less, that means that you care a little bit, right? And yeah, when I'm saying I could care less, I'm saying I could care a little bit. I'm understating the amount I care. That's like, that's the point of the phrase. My version is, you jump literally 10 feet. I think you mean figuratively? Okay, fine. He jumped literally 10 figuratively. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. Uh, Are we ready for another topic? Literally. Really? My topic is gasoline toast. And this was something that I... So, I read about a... um, a North Korean delicacy called gasoline clams. Apparently, this is something you can only do with clams from that part of the world where you have a bunch of clams on a, on a surface and you pour gasoline on top of them and then you light them all on fire. And then after the fire dies down, you eat the clams and, it's, and they're delicious. Huh. Food is weird. Yeah, I know, right? Uh, and like the, this doesn't work with most clams because they won't open – under that kind of heat or so I hear. Uh, And I was thinking you could do the same thing to make toast. Does toast open under that kind of heat? Well, oh yeah, you you don't even open the bag of bread. You just pour (laughs) gasoline. (laughs) You just pour gasoline over the clothes, like the the, the little plastic clip. (laughs) The clip is important for flavor. Right. Uh, hey, can we put a pin in the bag clip thing? Uh, keep talking about this, but I, I remember that I brought up that I'm going to say something about the bag clip thing. All right. All right. If I if I don't remember, then our listeners will, and they will harass you later. Yay! And you light the bag on fire, and then the plastic all melts away magically, and then oh, there's toast. I haven't tried this yet, but I bet it'll work. Probably. Almost oh, yeah, yeah, 100%. Who's in? <laughs> who, who, wants to, who wants to eat this toast with me? There's literally no, nothing that can go wrong with this. I mean, the time to try this was during that brief period where gas prices were negative. Oh, yeah. <laughs> You're getting your toast for free. Exactly. Right. So I want to hear about bad clips. Yeah, unless there's more details to this. Bag clips are good. Okay, so there's this website. uh, It's called Horg, H-O-R-G, which is a website dedicated to the taxonomy of bag clips. That's very specific. Do I need to go on? I feel like you could... Okay, just uh, in another tab, just go to... Type H-O-R-G. Go to this website. Holotypic... Aquaplanid Research Group. This site contains several years of research in the classification of aquaplanids. Is that a fancy word for bag clips? I guess so. Uh, Acule, that means uh, like occlude, as in, uh, you know, clothes or cover up, and uh, panid, as in pan, as in bread. They're, they have um, genius and species names for all these different kinds of clips, and I think they're doing that just. Because it's funny, because the way you would actually classify these clips is just by having a little picture of each one, and then you would right, click right. on that. <laughs> yeah, I love this website so much. <laughs> yeah. This website would annoy my scientist friends so much. <laughs> <laughs> I have to admit, when I went to this website, I expected to have a wider, to see a wider variety of closures. I don't know. Have you seen the... Like something with a spring in it, you know? Look at the Camptoconidae, spelled with a K. Like, I've never seen a clip like that before. I'm intrigued. I'm, I'm already discovering, like, exotic new varieties. Right, yeah. But they're all the kind that um, are, like, stamped out of a piece of plastic. Like, I don't see any zip ties or or twist ties. I think they'd classify like a, a twist tie as a separate species altogether. Right. I had a, I had a branching point also off of off of gasoline toast, which is the observation. I guess a further follow up on food is weird, which is just that like there there are recipes that I really wonder like how did someone come up with this? 
I'm going to go ahead and put gasoline clams on that list. Um, uh-huh. I think it belongs there. My usual go-to example is a dish called loop disc, which is basically where you put fish and you put lye on it and wait for it to like break down for a while. And you like wash all the lye off. And now it's, well, terrible, frankly, but also like uh-huh. preserved because nothing wants to eat it now. And now it's a delicacy. This was popular in, I think it's Norwegian or Scandinavian in origin. Uh, I grew up in Minnesota, so there were a lot of Norwegians and Scandinavians around, and you'd never want to eat that or smell it or look at it. But I also wonder, like, how do you come up with that? Like, what makes a person think, this is how I'll prepare the food today for a recipe like that? And I think gasoline clams are kind of in the same boat. Like, was this the result of a kitchen accident? Uh, speaking of kitchen accident, do you know about a uh, dishwasher salmon? <laughs> no, <laughs> I don't. I've never heard of this. You take a salmon and you put it in the dishwasher, and it perfectly cooks it. That is literally impossible. Like any dishwasher, just any dishwasher. <laughs> they're they're all at the perfect temperature to cook salmon. Is this is this for real? I can't tell. <laughs> dishwasher salmon. It's a thing. All right, dishwasher salmon. Like my my dishwasher doesn't have like a sous vide in there. Okay, so this is going to depend on like how your it's going to depend uh, on so many factors. How there your are so water many things calibrated. That <laughs> <laughs> it probably depends on the salmon too. Yeah. Uh huh. Okay. So this isn't. This seems to be. An idea that exists in the world. I can validate that much. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tom Scott did a video where he tested it, like way back before he was a serious dude. Apparently, according to thekitchen.com, it is not a new fad. Bob Bloomer, host of Food Network's The Surreal Gourmet, has been doing it for years. <laughs> No, is that doing it for years or talking about it for years? Because if you're actively doing it, he says it, doing it. He says doing it. He says he's been. He says it has cooked it in dishwashers around the world. Around the world. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not like I, I presumably to reassure people, there's not like a magic dishwasher that is required for this culinary miracle. Just any dishwasher. They all they're all at the perfect temperature. And he says, yes, you can even add detergent and clean your dishes while you cook your salmon. <laughs> no, you cannot. You cannot. That's, I, I refuse to believe that. You think someone would just go on the internet and tell lies about salmon preparation? That's dangerous. You started this. You brought this on yourself. If you were prepared to open the gates of knowledge, then you shouldn't have knocked upon them. It's true. It's true. The fish are wrapped in foil. So. Okay, well, that's cheating, I think. Yeah, foil is clearly uh, is, is mentioned here, too. Okay, I learned a thing today. That's amazing, and thank you. I'm going to share this with friends who need to be horrified. Regarding preferring fish with lye, um, if, it, if the lye acts as a preservative, that might be reason enough for, pe- for the ancient peoples to have done it. Right. It's also something that you wouldn't want to eat, though. Like, salt makes a pretty good preservative because, you know, it makes it tastier, and it's nothing you don't mind putting in your mouth. Lie is like the opposite on both those counts. Yeah, uh, you know, but life was hard back then. <laughs> Certainly if you're being fed like lie preserved fish jello. Oh, it's it's an aspic? Well, like it's more that like it just kind of turns jello-ish as it breaks down. Like it's not really jello, it's just kind of you got your internet up and running. It's Google Lutefisk. It's spelled L-U-T-E-F-I-S-K. Yeah, why don't I why don't I do that? The pictures, the pictures kind of say it all. Yeah, that's uh, that's gelatinous. It just it starts breaking down, and that exists. Somebody <laughs> came up with that recipe, <laughs> and then once it had been established that this particular way of preparing it was safe to eat, people tried to make it better with varying degrees of success. Sorry in advance to any audience members who are listening to this while eating loot fisk and thinking, "How dare he!" <laughs> <laughs> and further apologies to anyone who's listening to this while eating dishwasher salmon. And the biggest of apologies to anyone listening to this who's currently eating dishwasher loop disc. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a project I am now going to have to embark on. Godspeed, Jim. Godspeed. Even though I would never eat it. I just have to see if it's possible. 
And this is going to be the third time I go to jail for something I came up with on this podcast. <laughs> third time to charm. That That is exactly what that expression means. <laughs> uh, are we ready for another topic? I, I, I think we're ready. Here, this is a write-in. I'm going to go out on a limb on the pronunciation here. I think it's Ville. Ville asks, Oxford University was founded 200 years before the Aztec Empire, and the subway in London began operation during the American Civil War. Either someone's messing with the timeline, or we all have a very askew picture of how history is supposed to be laid out. Thoughts? Thoughts and prayers? <laughs> yeah, I've heard, I, I have heard variations of this, of this observation. One of my favorites is that uh, Cleopatra lived about as close to the building of the pyramids as she did to the founding of Pizza Hut. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> that is very good. The, the Pizza Hut also being a vaguely trapezoidal shape is kind of important. <laughs> Time is a flat circle. Right. I mean, I, part of this particular one, you know, specifically the Oxford University bit, it's just this, it's good to remember that, like, England's just been around for a really long time. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's the joke, right? Like, to... To an American, 200 miles is nothing. To a European, 200 years is nothing. I was right, literally right. about to quote the exact same thing. <laughs> <laughs> that was a spot for it. So anyone who knows it is going to be like, here is a quote-shaped spot in this conversation that I will put this quote into. It's like, and, and I'll admit, it had all the satisfaction of slotting like a piece into a jigsaw puzzle that exactly fits it. The Oxford versus the Aztec Empire thing makes a lot more sense to me because they were they weren't culturally connected at that time. Like they were two completely separate civilizations that were operating on completely separate timelines basically. Uh so it makes sense that there wouldn't really be any sort of temporal connection between them, but the um there was definitely like cultural back and forth between the United States and London in the mid 19th century. And so that's interesting. So do we know when, I'm going to look up when the New York subway was, uh, was started to be a thing. That is a good question. Also, my other question here is like, what are we calling a subway at that point? What did the London subway look like when it began operation? I mean, just any underground train, right? Yeah. Like they had horse drawn carriages that went through tunnels. I mean, seriously, I mean, is that, is that what we're talking about? What, was it a train? Was it steam powered? Was because it... I was thinking about the Pizza Hut thing. Uh, when I heard Subway, my, my mind actually went to the restaurant first. <laughs> Very good. That's not unfair. Uh, so the New York Subway opened, the first line opened in 1904. The Tube. I'm going to Google the Tube. Uh, it's pronounced Tube, actually. Tube. The Tube. The Metropolitan Railway was a passenger and goods railway that served London from 1863 to 1933. It looks like it was a, it was definitely a train. The first underground passenger railway. Well, thank you, Billy, or however it is pronounced. Sorry if that's not how. Uh, that is a cool fact that I'm going to file away for. When you're trying to impress people at the cocktail parties you never go to anymore. Exactly. Because before before this, let me tell you, I was like all over that cocktail scene. You know, what's the name of your corgi? Temmie. You could impress Temmie over and over again with this factoid because I bet she'll forget it every time. <laughs> I don't know. She has a pretty good memory, especially for, for London facts. Is is that where she's from? No, but you know, I mean, corgi's ancestral home is, is at least in Wales, so that, that's close. Is she angry, angry about Brexit? She thinks Boris Johnson is a tool. Fair. That's pretty much the only thing I know about British politics. <laughs> Are we ready for another topic? Sure. Yeah. Mitch, your topic is the game. The one Wikipedia helpfully disambiguates as the game mind game is not very well designed. Okay. So first of all, apologies to anyone who wants to get performatively angry about the fact that we're going to spend some time thinking about the game now. I just so want it. it well, I've actually never played this game before. I've just heard people talking about it, and it doesn't sound very fun, so I've just decided not to play. Let me talk about it afterwards, because I'm actually super good at it. Oh, yeah, yeah. You, you know all the pro strats? Uh-huh. Anyway, so take a, take a moment to breathe if you're listening to this and you're, like, upset that we brought it up. 
the whole I- the whole idea of the game, right? If you haven't heard of it, is that you start playing when you figure out that it's a thing. When someone tells you about it, you begin to play, and you lose when you've when you're reminded that you are playing, and you can never stop playing. That that's the that's the whole game. Mm-hmm. Um, the meta of the game is that when you lose, you have to announce that you've lost. So it's contagious. Right. So when you say that you've lost and if someone doesn't already know what's going on, you then have to explain it to them. This game is very bad as a game, right? Because there's no there's nothing that happens other than you can't play it without losing. That's literally the only way it can work. But here's a little twist. Imagine an equivalent game from in terms of like game theory, like an equivalent game would be one where you win as soon as you forget that you're playing. So when you're reminded of it later, it's not that you've lost now that you're reminded. It's that once you're reminded later, oh, I won that time when I forgot about it. And that's the same game in terms of game theory, but it's a game where the only thing that can ever happen is you win instead of the only thing that can ever happen is you lose. And I think that would be a much better game. This is what it feels like when doves cry. (laughs) Literally, that was my exact... So what I was saying, I have some, I have some feelings, and I'm, and I'm, I'm winning the game right now. I've basically gone through the exact same thought process. So I take exception with a game having a rule that says you're playing it. Like a game can't compel you to play it, no matter what. Yeah, the then say. it's not a game, so, right? <laughs> like that's 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 not how games work. Like a game, a reasonable definition of a game, in fact, is a set of arbitrary rules that we take upon ourselves or impose upon ourselves because following them generates a situation that's more fun than not following. If you can't choose not to play, it's not a game. Yes. So anyway, especially during the time when like Reddit and other internet sites were where it was in vogue to occasionally try to make people lose the game, uh, I took this particular delight in inventing my own game, which is going to sound really familiar to you. There's only one minor twist. My game goes like this. I'm playing it all the time. Whenever someone reminds me I'm playing it, playing it I think about how delicious cupcakes are. <laughs> <laughs> it works really well at its two main goals. One of them is one of them is the one you just described, which is that you know instead of just every so often feeling annoyed that I lost, or even just feeling compelled to theatrically complain that I lost, I think about how delicious cupcakes are. Right now, I'm thinking of the nice red velvet with the uh, cream cheese frosting. The other goal good. of this game, which it also succeeded at admirably, is it annoys the heck out of the people who are feeling like I should be more upset that I just was reminded about the game. <laughs> <laughs> they hated it and kept telling me that like I just lost. I'm like, no, no, this feels like winning. Mm, yeah. I guess I'm just playing a different game than you. You should try mine, it's way more fun. So yes, I applaud and salute your thought process. I think you are exactly right. That is a much better game. I found that uh whenever someone like because I don't know if you know this, but I'm a YouTuber. Um but whenever someone decides to comment, I I just lost the game for whatever reason. Which happens for some reason in 2020. People do that. Whenever someone does that, I my go-to response is, oh, what's that? I've learned that people who care about the game find explaining the game to be a fun thing to do. Because maybe if they just explain it to me, I will, I too will become angry. <laughs> but you see, like, they don't realize you sneakily help them to win the game by your standard, right? Like, all they have to do is be like, oh, no, I lost the game. And then you do something that brings joy to their life. Exactly. Maybe the way you win the game is by explaining it to people. So here, okay, here's the new game. Ready? Everyone is always playing, and you win if you explain to someone that they're playing. <laughs> hey, hey, Jim, you're playing the game right now. Tell me again. Uh, you're playing the game right now. Wow, you're really good at this game. <laughs> it's pretty great. Are you familiar with the game of Mao? As a, as a slight, like... Yes, I have. I, I've actually played Mao. I, I think it's interesting. So right now, I'm not aware. It's a very strange card game where part of the gimmick, the gimmick is only one person who is running the game actually knows the rules. And part of the game is figuring out what the rules are. And whenever you break the rules, people you'll, you'll get punished in the game. It's, it's basically, it's kind of like, it's a game where you're trying to lose all the cards in your hand. It's an Uno-like. It's, it's Uno-like. Anyway, we were talking about a, a viral version of a game that spreads. My first thought was, huh, 
That sounds kind of like now in some ways. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if the two ideas could be combined in some interesting way. So here's the new game. Everyone is always playing, and you're not allowed to know what the rules are. That's the whole game. <laughs> I feel like the game you just described is basically what we call life. Oh, no. <laughs> or at least there's like a metaphor there, like, we're all playing all the time, but we don't know what the rules are, and we're trying to figure out how to win. What what company owns the game that's called the Game of Life, but not the one that's the famous math one? I would guess Hasbro or Milton Bradley. It looks like it is Milton Bradley. So the thing I remember about the Game of Life, at least the version we had when I was growing up, was that it had these neat like like hills and things that you slotted into the board, so you're driving over this actually kind of interesting landscape. Yeah, yeah, that is the sort of thing that passes for cool in the context of board games from before like 1990 before we figured out that i I feel like the 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 history of board games it's like at one point we figured out that hexagons are good (laughs) eventually we figured out that people are really good at using their imaginations to make the game more interesting and then someone figured out video games and then board games died (laughs) right and no one has played a board game ever since r.i.p board games you are sorely missed Except for video game adaptations of Carcassonne. Exactly. And video games that have hexagons in them? They're, oh, man. Like Super Hexagon? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just all about the hexagon. That is a good one. It doesn't get any better than that. Are we ready for another topic? Yeah. Sure. Chris, your topic is the best five plants. All right. Aha! This is actually a trick. My topic is not really going to be the best five plants, but because it starts out about the best five plants, because that's how I get into the actual topic. <laughs> Go on. So I was having a conversation with a friend of mine who is a botanist, and they were telling me about road games they played with other botanists while they were driving. I am I am deeply interested in this. What what are some? Tell me about these road games. Well, a really common one. That they would play, because they do a lot of field surveys, which basically involves trekking out to some remote spot, setting up like a boundary and counting all of the samples of a particular kind of plant they can find in that area so they can track, you know, what's growing well and what's endangered and what's having its habitat changed. Yeah, yeah. So on those trips, they've worked out some interesting kind of games, and one of them is called uh, The Best Five, which is just straight up. They would pick a topic and then try to come up with a list of the best five examples of that topic and then argue about them. Let me see. I actually grabbed a list of those that we can... According to her, lists of things that they have had top five discussions about are invasive plants, invasive plants I hate, vines, <laughs> shrubs, cenothus species, oaks, plants... Let's see. Plant genera starting with a certain letter of the alphabet... Forbes, which are apparently a kind of flowering plant and not the magazine, and graminids? I think that says graminoids. Okay. Also pine cones, I guess, were somewhere in there. So I was like, oh, this is interesting. What are your top five forbs? And she started listing a few, and I was like, well, this, these, it's neat, but I don't actually know what any of these are or why they're the best. So <laughs> Right, yeah. I was like, okay, so let's... You know what might be more interesting is, what are the worst five forbs? Like, because all the other ones are just kind of like, oh, yeah, that one's nice. It's got nice flowers or what pretty stems or whatever. Like, there's no real dramas. I wanted to hear about the mean forms, the bad ones, the ones that she'd look at and, like, shake her head, clicking her tongue sadly. Maybe one of them smells bad. Well, she was intrigued. And, man, I got a, I got some good ones. So the first thing I want to do is just read off some responses from my botanist friend about the worst five forms. Yes. Can't wait. Apologies in advance. To any uh, anyone who's going to laugh at my horrible pronunciation of these things. All right. Number one, the Croton Setager. It looks soft, but it is stabby. And if it were not <laughs> held back by the forces of Imperial Spain, it would just coat the hillsides with six-inch hemispheres of itching hairs. <laughs> it is also always full of doves. <laughs> I wasn't really clear why this last one was a negative, but she just kept repeating so many doves until I just kind of assumed <laughs> it was probably something bad about it. Next up, Madia Radiata. 
It grows in patches, and you're like, oh, how pretty. And then you have to wade through it, and you get tar all over your pants, and it doesn't wash out, but it does make everything in that load of laundry smell like Nadia. And that's bad. That's apparently bad. (laughs) I mean, I guess just tar all over you is. Erigion Sicutarium? Somehow the daying leaves look like every single rare form simultaneously. So I'm like, comb, comb, comb. Oh, a poppy! Wait, no, it's Dork's Bill. I hate this plant. (laughs) I hate it so much. Stupid plant. (laughs) On a related note, uh, 110% of the Persicarias, because they're either rare or invasive and are impossible to key without, like, seeds and buds and flowers. So you have to get them at exactly the right season, and they don't even bloom every year. Jerks. (laughs) (laughs) And then the last one is Agapanthus, just because she hates the way it smells and how it's ubiquitous, cheap, mediocre landscaping plant. So, first off, I just found those delightful. It was was a way more fun list than best plants, because these were plants that you clearly had a history with, and that was not a good history. Right. This is is like some AVGN shit, except for plants. (laughs) That's it. That's exactly what it is. AVGN? (laughs) Uh, Angry video game nerd. Oh, yeah. Well, this got me thinking. So, this is the second part of this topic, the surprise part, is I thought we should pick something that we all know at least something about and try to play, like, worst five of because i think this might be an entertaining party game so are we picking one thing that we all could pick from or are we each individually picking something that we could pick from no no we have to find something that we can all pick from because then we get to argue about it it'll be great what are the bottom five letters of the alphabet you know that's a good one let's do that all right i'm going to start out by saying d because it's basically just lowercase d in particular because it's basically just lowercase b the sequel and just somebody who just couldn't come up with a better example. Yeah. D, D is definitely like one of the more most boring ones. I think C C is bad. You take that back. No, no. C is top tier. <laughs> because there's two ways to pronounce it, and they're both taken up by other letters of the alphabet. Like you can say K, and that's K. Or you can say <laughs> I, I, S, and I that's no S. I no joke have like a video essay in the works about the letter C. <laughs> Uh-huh. And how bad it is. Uh, about the history of it. How interesting it is. With it. You don't even need K. Get out of here, K. You're not even, why are you even here? So are you saying like we that that K and S should like go together like as a single unit below C? No, K and S together as a single unit is called X. Mm. I'm saying like K and, K and S are just superfluous. Why are they even in the alphabet? We can go down to 24 letters. I think, okay, so there's three separate letters that are all just K, right? There's K, there's C, K, and Q. It's like so redundant. Oh, yeah. Like one of them has to go, surely. And I think Q is the most unnecessary of them. Oh, yeah. Get get rid of Q. But also Q is like, I understand like the aesthetic of it is something that that some people are into. It's just a backwards P. That's the thing, right? It's the same thing with D, right? It's just one of those ones, but it's, but it's capital form. You can't forget its capital form. Its capital form is unique. It, it's it's got a dope. It, yeah, but that's it's a different discussion. So the Q is always followed by the U. So we can actually just get rid of the Q, and then the U would stand in for the sound. J- j- yeah, you just need the U, right? Of the Q U sequence, uh, the the Q is the unnecessary half. <laughs> right. Yes. Like we call royal. Like we call the wife of the king. That would be the we. No, it's still pronounced queen. You just don't have the Q there. Oh, it'd just be spelled you. It'd be spelled ween. Ween. With a W this time. Because W is the best letter. W is pretty good. Although, I've never defined W and not double D. I feel like I have, I have points off of a that. video essay about that one. <laughs> <laughs> I literally made a video about the history of the letter W. It's, I think it's my best video. Um, it's called W. All right, hear me out here. Instead of having W, just have... You twice. That's what it was. It used to be that. <laughs> but wait, not V? Uh, no, U and V at the time were the same letter. Uh, you would use V, like the pointier version of U would be at the beginning of a word. And uh, if it was in the middle of a word, you would round it up a little bit. But it was the same letter. Um, and at the beginning of a word, uh, it was more likely that you would use the consonant version. And in the middle of a word, it was more likely to be a vowel version. But they were the same letter, and they were both called U. So that's why it's called W, even though it's two Vs. 
I'm I'm fascinated by the idea that you would write a letter differently depending on whether it was at the beginning or an end of a word. And at the same time, it had two separate unrelated pronunciation. Well, not unrelated. Um, they 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 are historically related, but two completely different pronunciations depending on if you're using this one letter as a vowel versus a consonant. And then right. what ended up happening was like one shape ended up being used for the consonant and one shape ended up being used for the vowel. And it took a while of them doing that before they agreed, okay, these are two letter, two different letters now. Like it took until like the 17th century before they figured out, okay, these two shapes that we're using for two different sounds in two different contexts, yeah, these are two separate letters. <laughs> All right, I just have to admit put my cards on the table. I do not know how to argue with someone who can say without a hint of irony, oh, I actually have a video essay about the history of that letter. <laughs> and then back it up with, like, just start dropping facts about that letter. Like, yeah, uh, the history of the letter W is one of these topics that, like, um, I spent like three solid months just researching, and then I was like, "Well, what am I going to do with this information now that I have it?" <laughs> That's how you started your YouTube channel. <laughs> now you make ten cents a day. Oh man, it's perfect. I don't think we reached a set of five letters. I don't think we reached a consensus. Well, I no, I no longer feel qualified to like offer a consensus. I'm like, okay, this guy just knows letters better than me. I know that we're getting rid of we're getting rid of C, K, S, and W and Q. All of it. Well, what's going to be good now? Just G? Is G going to have to be used for it? Let's choose X. I mean, X means nothing's already. Let's just add that on. Yeah. What do you call the 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 visual puzzle where you like take glyphs and you like you're supposed to sound out the glyphs and then like subtract other glyphs from. A rebus, yes. We'll use a rebus where you say X minus, and then you would have it like a snake hissing, and that would be the <laughs> well, the letter sound. S is actually the letter S is shaped like a snake, as you've noticed. Oh, we can't have snakes because we already took the S out. What have you done? Well, you can use Z, so it's fine. It's basically just like a like a heavy metal snake. Right. And the letter X is sometimes pronounced with a Z anyway, right? Like at the beginnings of words, so if you say X minus Z, I think people will figure it out. Oh, and yeah. That's how we turned English into algebra. <laughs> <laughs> There's just too many of them, you know. Twenty six is too many. What is a good number of letters? Like, how many do you think we get it down to? If we just like dropped our limit to five and said, let's just start. I mean, it obviously, away. depends on the language, right? English probably shouldn't be using the Latin alphabet to begin with. It just does not fit. Latin itself, the thing that the Latin alphabet was designed for, uh, Latin could have dropped maybe two of the, the two or three of the letters in there. Like Latin didn't really have a use for Y or K or Q. Like none of those were really necessary. Like Q was used for a specific thing. People who know stuff about Latin, you you get it. Um, <laughs> and the other thing is that the letter G originally wasn't a thing. They used to use C for both K and G, just interchangeably. And then they said, hey, this is, why are we doing this? And so they added an extra line to the C to indicate that it's G instead of K. That's their solution, I guess. <laughs> so the the other approach we can take is, if we want to simplify the alphabet, is, is just removing sounds from the language, removing pronounced sounds. Yeah. H, obviously, easiest one to drop. Right, especially if you're British. Especially, that's it. And also, if you're British, you can drop T, because if you're British, you don't you don't need it. I disagree. Brit- British people would never go without T. <laughs> that's a good point. That's a, that is... Mm. Well, just rename one of the other ones T. So I'm wondering what the end game here is. Like, if we just remove all the letters, except, like, maybe, I don't know, A, and then just every word is a different number of A's... Well, that's what Morse code is. Well, Morse code, not exactly. Morse code is every word is a different sequence of A's. I'm, I'm actually saying just like... Wait, every word is the same sequence of A's? Is that no, what you're no, suggesting? No, every, every no, word is a just... different sequence of A's. Say you take like the top 10,000 <laughs> words, and the first word is 1A, and the second word is 2A's, 3A's, all the way up to 10,000 A's. It takes a really long time to say that one, so we probably want to use like the, the least used words for the ones that take a lot of A's. The really common ones like like A would just be A, or the might be AA. We could also just draw one A for every word, but make it bigger or smaller. 
Yeah, that would make more sense. Or, or like different fonts. There's there's enough fonts to use a different font for every single word, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, what if we combine those? Like font size, like we have a, a grid and font size plus font equals the word. There's this thing that I saw and I don't know how I could possibly like verify that I saw it because I don't remember what it's called. But it's this encoding scheme that uses font where like a subtle difference in font indicates like an extra layer of information on top of text. So that way you can encode two strings at once where one string is encoded in the font. It is just the string and the other string is encoded in the font. And like the point of it is that the differences in font are subtle enough that you're not going to notice. That's very good. I really enjoy stenography things like that. Like the, the, the common one you see a lot is like swapping L's, lowercase L's and uppercase I's are interchangeable in a lot of fonts. There's also like um, different writing systems that are like related to the Latin alphabet will have uh, homoglyphs where they have another letter that just looks exactly the same. Uh, like the Cyrillic alphabet has a whole bunch of letters that look exactly the same as Latin letters. Like even if like you're having a fancy font that like has all of the things in it, uh, they're not going to distinguish between them. Like the Cyrillic letter S looks exactly like the letter C. That's how you have to have like fake google.com by having a different letter that kind of looks like an O. Or you can have a letter that looks exactly like an O, like the Cyrillic letter O. Yeah, it's just, uh, it's pixel identical. In fact, I forget which language it is, but I remember a talk at Google where they actually used that as an example, except the one they, they showed us, you know, a thing on the board. It's like, how about this URL? Does this look okay? Well, it's not. You think that's spelled Google? No, that's G, and then those two O's are one letter in some alphabet, like Greek or something. Oh, yeah, the, the OO ligature is a letter that was introduced for uh, Native American languages because... Anglophonic imperialism was introduced in North America, and they were like, how are we going to spell ooh in this language? And they used double O because they're English speakers, and that they made that a single letter because it has to be a letter or something. I was hoping it represented googly eyes. That would be better. I mean, all you have to do is make a new language where it does. There's actually a concept in in the Cyrillic alphabet. There's this uh, concept of the... uh, monocular o and that there's the binocular o and multiocular o where uh in there's some like manuscripts where uh the canonical way for it to be represented for some words like the word for i uh there's an o in it and you want to put a dot in the i so that the word for i looks like there's an i there and that's like the canonical way to write this manuscript so it has to be its own separate letter mitch can you make the case for having both separate upper and lowercase, because I'm thinking the bottom five letters can just be like all uppercase letters. Oh, yeah, yeah. We don't, we don't need two of them. Uh, the reason uh, historically, right, th- these were just two completely separate alphabets. The, the reason we've decided to just use them in tandem is because it, it, it was this thing when people were like writing manuscripts that the first letter in a document could be written as like the fancier big letters and then the rest would be written in their smaller letters. And then it became a thing where, oh, well, what about not just the first letter of their document, maybe the first letter in names or the first letter of every single sentence? Hey, what about the pronoun I? Sure, why not? And it just became a thing where we would just use these two completely different writing systems interchangeably at at the beginnings of everything. And And we just became used to it but like, we don't have to live like this. Is this the thing like where like the first letter of a chapter is printed in this really fancy like gothic fonts with like ornate lines coming out of it? Yeah, it's a generalization of that. What if you could legally change your name to be like Chris, except the C is illuminated? Man, I don't know. Like, there, I don't know what the bounds of name laws are. I think the person you would want to ask is a DMV employee. I know there's parts of the U.S. where uh, legally your name has to be case insensitive, all plain Latin alphabet. Right. So how does this compare to like the Japanese hiragana, katakana, kanji situation? Right, because they use three separate writing systems. And two of them are like one to one identical, right? Uh, well, they're uh, functionally the same, but, you know, visually they're completely different. And they're used for different things. 
Yeah, yeah. So the Japanese uses hiragana for native words, katakana for sound effects and loan words, and then there's kanji, which is also used for native words and also for uh, loan words that are uh, Sino-Japanese words that's loan words from Chinese languages. So I guess there you go, Jim. Like we could have three alphabets instead of two. Two syllabaries <laughs> and one logography. <laughs> we should have more logographies, I think. There's not enough of them out there. That is not something that so, no one has ever said that to me before. You know how many, like, there's, like, most logographies that are in active use are all just one big family. Like, like Unicode encodes, like, traditional Chinese, simplified Chinese, Japanese kanji, uh, old Vietnamese, and middle Korean uh, Hanja all is just one thing, like the the CJK unified thing, like they treat it all as though it's just one giant logography of all of these different things, because they're all historically related. Oh, it's not because Unicode is racist. <laughs> it, it's not like a bias that they they. Uh, I, I think their internal reasoning is that like the well the existing standards didn't distinguish between these, so we have to copy it for backwards compatibility. It's, that's that's why they need like twelve train emojis. Yeah, uh, but like I feel like Unicode has so much space, they could afford to encode all of these separately, right? <laughs> Does it still have a lot of space? I know I remember a while ago there was kind of like this wide open wild west, and people were like, "Let's add Klingon." Klingon's still not in there. There was a proposal for it, which was rejected for some reason. Oh, I thought I. I am misinformed then. I thought Klingon got in like years and years ago. No, there was there was a proposal for it, but it was rejected. It's 32-bit, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. So Unicode is encoded in a few different ways. Um, it was designed for uh, 16-bit. The total number of characters in Unicode... Okay, this is wild, I think. The total number of characters in Unicode is actually 2 to the 21. <laughs> it's because it was designed for 16-bit systems... And uh, their 32-bit thing is just two 16-bit things in a row. So it, there's one plane, the basic multilingual plane, that has two to the 16 characters in it. But there's one section of the BMP that has this reserved bit that allows you to have two characters in a row that each contain 10 bits of information. So with UTF-16, the original like thing it, the restrictions are designed for, you can either have one 16-bit character, or within this certain range, you can have two 16-bit characters in a row that contain 20 bits of information. <laughs> oh, the ancient people were so dumb. <laughs> <laughs> they should have predicted that 32-bit would just be fine later. I mean, everyone uses UTF-8 now, so it actually is just 8-bit. I actually, like, I actually think UTF-8 is... I think, like, UTF-8 is really good. Well, UTF-8 has the advantage that, it, that if you are encoding text that doesn't have extended Unicode characters, then it works like natural ASCII. And so it's very yeah, yeah, like, the range of Unicode that is the same as ASCII in UTF-8 is just the same thing. And that's great. Good, good job. Good job. And that's all the time we have for Topic Lords tonight. Uh, Chris, if this is something that you want, where can people find you on the internet? I'll find them. <laughs> okay. Uh, and Mitch, if this is something that you want, where can people find you on the internet? I'm on YouTube, Jan Misely, lowercase Jan, capital Misely. Uh, I'm also on Seximal.net and HBM Master on Twitter and other places. All right. Thanks so much for being on, folks. Thanks yeah, for us. this has been fun. This is my f first podcast, so. Oh, wow. Yeah, never done this before. You know what you could do? If you want to be on your second podcast, like immediately, you could make uh, just audio-only versions of all your YouTube videos. <laughs> well, man, I, to I totally could, right? Because my visuals are all minimalist and stuff. I totally could just turn it into a podcast if I wanted to. Yeah, and and make even less money. Exactly. I mean, it's not mutually exclusive, right? You, you do that in addition. Now, now people can reach them in multiple but ways. But think about all the ad sense I'd be missing out. Oh, that's true. People could access your content in an ad-free way. Well, you'd have to, you have to sell the podcast, right? Like, try yeah, to that's it. For $5,000, you can access my videos without video.
Do you have like a Patreon? Yeah, yeah, I'm on Patreon. You should plug that too. Okay, I'm on Patreon also. It's the same as my Twitter. Hi, this is Jim. This is the audio I append to every episode of Topic Lords. Congratulations to our newly anointed lords. If you'd like more people to hear the show, you can tell your friends about it or rate and review us on whatever podcast service you use. You can add content to the Topic Bucket by emailing topicbucket at topiclords.com. You can contribute to our Patreon at patreon.com slash topiclords. Patrons get episodes a week early, and you get access to the Topic Lords Discord, where you can discuss topics with all the lords that hang out in there. See you next episode.